All right, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 29. Genesis chapter 29. This is the first of several in a series where we're going to be look for hope, looking for hope in God's Word. And particularly what we're going to do is look at saints throughout redemptive history and how they've experienced uh, various trials and how God has brought hope to them. Today, as we walk through this, we're going to look at hope for dysfunctional families. Now, some of y'all may look and you're like, yep, that's us. But for the rest of us, it may or may not be that obvious. But the truth is, we all deal with dysfunction at some level because we all bring sin to our relationships. And this morning, as we walk through this text together, we're going to see this central truth that the gospel gives hope to even the most dysfunctional relationships. The gospel gives hope to even the most dysfunctional relationships. I mean, we live in the era of dysfunctional relationships, dysfunctional families. The tabloids of the 90s and 2000s, things like National Enquirer, sort of that grocery check. I mean, they're still there, but they've given way to uh, aggregate sites online that just collect millions of points of data on various celebrities, politicians, personalities, and all that's going on in their lives. And they love salacious headlines, whether it's our own president's three marriages, or whether it's we look back through history and you come to a ruler like King Henry VIII who had six wives as he looked for one who would grant him an heir. You see, dysfunctional families, they are a part of our fabric, the fabric of our culture, but they're not new today. As we look back a little bit further than uh, the history of England, we come to biblical history. And you meet a man like King David, a man after God's own heart, but David had something like seven or eight wives, kind of depending on the passage, it can be a little bit tricky, but he's got several. Well, then his son Solomon took things to the next level, as Solomon had 700 wives and 300 additional women in his harem. Solomon was a busy man. Now, no doubt many of these marriages were for political alliances or for convenient purposes to kind of build nation states, but nevertheless, it's evident that even as we walk through redemptive history, dysfunctional families are a reality of life. But the difficulty with marriage began even before this. Right at the beginning is Adam and Eve, the first father and mother, sinned. And after they sinned, in Genesis chapter 3, in Genesis 3.16, we find God's curse. And he promises in this moment that there will be enmity between the offspring of the woman, Eve, and the offspring of the serpent, Satan. And he promises that there is coming a day when the seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. And the story of the Bible is really a story of those two lines. We don't have to track very far before we find dysfunction in the line of the woman. You see, Abraham and Sarah, they have their own series of dysfunctional moments. Or Isaac and Rebekah. But we come to Jacob, and Jacob really takes it to the next level. We're kind of getting to that third generation after Abraham, and, and Jacob has issues. You see, Jacob is a schemer. He plans, he manipulates. He doesn't relate to life honestly and openly with open hand. He's always looking for an angle, but Jacob meets his match in his uncle Laban. Now, Laban is also Jacob's future father-in-law. Jacob is out looking for a wife. And he walks along and he spies a woman 
And he says, now there's the girl I'm going to marry, Rachel. And he agrees to work for seven years to marry this woman, the love of his life. And it's in Genesis 29, verse 16, that we're introduced to a key plot twist. You see, Rachel is Laban's daughter. But then Moses tells us now Laban had two daughters. And it's at this moment we get a foreshadowing that there may be trouble coming. Moses knows how to tell a good story. And he begins to introduce us to differences between these two daughters, Leah, the older, and Rachel, the younger. And he says, now Leah's eyes were weak. Now that's what our translations typically say here, but maybe, that the word literally means delicate or soft. And so probably a better way of looking at this is that Leah's eyes were delicate. Leah has beautiful eyes. This is about what he's not saying more than what he's saying. He says, Leah has, she has nice eyes. Rachel, she was beautiful in form and appearance. See, one daughter is beautiful to look at. The other, when you say, what's she like? Well, she has nice eyes. She's got a good personality. I mean, Leah's got, you know, points that sell, but Rachel, I mean, Rachel is the total package. So when Jacob sees these two daughters, he has no problem choosing. So Jacob works for seven years for the right to marry the beautiful daughter. And verse 20 tells us, they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. So we're going to find ourselves now picking up in Genesis 29 verse 21. We're at the tail end of a seven-year process as Jacob has served for the right to marry the woman of his dreams. And after seven years of seeing and working for Rachel, he is ready and raring to go. Genesis 29, 21. Let's pick up our text there. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? Didn't I serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it's not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we'll give you the other also in return for serving with me for another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years years. We're going to look at this passage in a series of acts in a play. And the first act we've just come to is a terrible double marriage. It's evening, it's the ancient Near East, and the bride is veiled. Jacob no doubt can't see very well. He goes through with the wedding. Perhaps he's had a little bit too much wine to drink. He wakes up the next morning. In the morning, behold, it was Leah. 
And I can promise you the first thing in his mind was not, she's got nice eyes. I mean, I can hardly imagine this moment. This isn't like kind of an old school arranged marriage where you're getting into a marriage that's uncomfortable and at least you know what you're getting into. Jacob has one picture in mind. It's beautiful in form and appearance. And he wakes up to something rather different. Naturally, Jacob is a little upset. But he agrees to serve seven years to earn the right to marry Rachel. Now look again at verse 30. He loved Rachel more than Leah. Now this preposition, more than, can also be translated rather than. In other words, he loved Rachel rather than Leah. He loved Rachel and never really loved Leah. Well, it doesn't take a very bright person to look and see we have a recipe for conflict. Not only are there multiple women married to the same man, they're sisters. One is good-looking, the other not so much. Before we go on, it's appropriate to comment on something we see a number of times throughout the Old Testament. Jacob has more than one wife. So here he is a bigamist. He has two wives. He's about to become a polygamist, which means he has multiple wives. So what gives? Is God okay with this sort of thing? Well, no, because we know from the very beginning of Scripture, Genesis 1 and 2, that God established one man, one woman, covenanted together in marriage for life. We know this because Jesus picks up this same theme in the Gospels. He reiterates this. And then the New Testament letters, the epistles, do the same thing. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. So, if this is the case, where does polygamy come from? Well, you remember the curse in Genesis 3, 16, the offspring of the woman, the offspring of the serpent. And what we have is a storyline tracing the, these lines through Scripture. And in Genesis 4, the line of the serpent comes... To Lamech. Now, Lamech is a descendant of the first murderer, Cain. Cain killed his brother Abel. And Lamech is a profane man. And he's the first one, Genesis 4:19. Lamech took two wives. Well, this, prod, this, this practice becomes sadly rather common after this, and it's practiced then by some of God's people as well. Never encouraged by God, nevertheless, even in the midst of darkness like this, there's an encouragement for God's people. God doesn't hide any of the foibles, the warts of those who have gone before us. He doesn't mask the dark side of David or the dark side of Jacob. You see, the record of biblical history isn't a record of how good those people were, but of how much they need a redeemer. If we honestly evaluate our own lives and our own time, it may not be polygamy because, you know, we've written that off the books, but we've got other ways of practicing things like this. Cohabitation, visual stimulation, wicked entertainment. It could be any of a long list of faults. You see, in the end, God never excuses sin, but he offers full pardon for the worst of sinners. Well, if we don't have enough problems with two sisters married to the same man, what could make this more complicated? Well, we're going to introduce children to the equation. 
verse 31. Genesis 29, verse 31. We'll read down through the end of the chapter. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction. For now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I'm hated, he's given me this son also. She called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi, and she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah, and she ceased bearing. We're looking at this passage in a series of acts or stages, and marriage itself can be a little like that, can't it? You've kind of got like the pre-married phase, where you're engaged, you're betrothed to someone, and you anticipate that day coming, and then you've got kind of the early stage of marriage. Married, no children, you're young and you're carefree, but you don't know it, and then you have children, and then your children, and you have them grow up, and they have middle school children, and teenage children, and then adult children, and it's an empty nest, and if you look at marriage, it's got its own acts or stages. And each act, bring, each act brings with it its own set of challenges. But it's also not linear like this, is it? Because sometimes people long for children and can't have them. Other people have children and lose them. And sometimes we lose them because they leave us. See, marriage always brings with it some heartache. One of the most terrible tragedies anyone can experience is the loss of a child. We have here in this moment a key plot line introduced to this drama. Leah, I mean, she can blink and have a kid. In these verses, she has four sons. And in each of them, she sees that the good hand of our sovereign God is at work. And we can see this too because her third son is Levi. Levi will father a tribe of priests who will guard the worship of God's people and intercede for the people to God. Her fourth son, oh, he's Judah. And from Judah will come David. And from David, David's greater son, Jesus, the Messiah. So we've got Leah with all these kids, Rachel with no children. But a schemer like Laban doesn't give, daughter, give birth to a daughter who takes this lying down. Rachel's going to put up a fight. So we find ourselves in chapter 30 with an unhappy wife. Deuteronomy, or sorry, Genesis 30, verse 1. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I'll die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, here's my servant Bilhah. Go into her that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. Isn't it interesting? This is all about her sister. So she called his name Naphtali. So Rachel demands something from Jacob, but it's not something that Jacob can actually give. Give me children or I will die. Jacob loves Rachel. 
No doubt he's given Rachel everything he possibly can. If he could give her kids, he would do it, but he can't. Am I in the place of God who's withheld from you the fruit of the womb? The Lord breathed life into Adam's body in the garden, and he has always been the giver of life. Children are a gift from the Lord. Psalm 127, verse 3, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. Children bring life's greatest joys and also our greatest heartaches. If you've ever gone through a period of so badly wanting children yet not having a child, you know Rachel's pain. This is magnified in this story because in ancient Near Eastern culture, her entire reason for existing is to have children. Rachel's identity and worth are tied up in this. No kid, no worth. But Rachel is a schemer. She's not about to take this lying down. So in verse 3, here is my servant, go into her so she can give birth for me. Having children to carry on the family line is the most important job of a woman in the ancient Near East. The stakes for Rachel are high. The family honor, the family fortune, the family property passes on through the children. So if in this culture a woman doesn't have a son in fairly short order, it's a major problem. So it's common to have a backup plan. In 15th century BC texts, most of the discussion about marriage is about childlessness and what to do about it because it was such a big deal because it was about children, but it was also about everything else. You have no children, you lose everything. So if a wife has kids, it's all good. But if she doesn't, it's a common practice to take a servant or slave girl as a wife, and the girl does become a wife, kind of a second-class wife because she doesn't come with a bride price, but the husband then is committed to care for her and provide for her as he is his other wife. And in this household, we've got sisters, Rachel and Leah. And now we've got tiers, classes, first class wives and second class wives. Again, this is not an endorsement. This is not a recommendation. God is recording what has happened. This already messy family is getting a lot messier because now second class wife number one has two sons, Dan and Naphtali. Now, Rachel's crafty like her father. Leah, though, has known Rachel her entire life. She knows she's going to fight back. She knows when she fights, she doesn't fight fair. So Leah now fights right back herself. We've got unhappy wife number two. Genesis 30, verse 9. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, Good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. Well, Leah's had four kids, but she hits a bump in the road, and she's kind of got this pause. So she says to Rachel, Anything you can do, I can do better 
So she gives Jacob a fourth wife. And Zilpah has two sons. So Jacob has four wives, eight sons, and a whole lot of problems. So Leah is not having any more kids at this point. Now, we don't know all the reasons for this. There may be multiple reasons, but we get some insight into one of the reasons in verses 14 through 21. It's time for more children. Let's pick up in verse 14. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben, oldest son, went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, but then he may lie with you in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar, and Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. So what we've got here is women married to the same man, but the beautiful wife, Rachel, using her beauty, her privileged position to manipulate her husband, keep him away from Leah. Mandrakes are a fruit, they look a little bit like an apple, but they are particularly fragrant in nature, sweet-smelling. So it was believed in the ancient Near East that it led to physical attraction. So if you have mandrakes, it increases the likelihood that something might happen. So when Rachel sees Leah with these, she's a little bit jealous, could threaten her position. So she trades time, ironically, with Jacob for mandrakes. And lo and behold, Leah blinks another child, then a six, then a daughter. So at this point, Leah has had seven children. Rachel, zero. Well, this section is important, not just because Leah has more kids, she does, but it also gives us insight into the inner workings of this dysfunctional family. Jacob is out in a field, in part because he's a sheep rancher. But he no doubt has servants that can take care of his sheep for him. He's probably also out in the field to get a little peace and quiet. I mean, back home, he's got four wives and a bunch of kids all at one another's throats. He's like, the sheep look pretty good. No one's happy about this. But Jacob isn't just working out in the field. He's absent in his home. And when he's there, he's completely passive in his leadership of his home. Rachel is selling time with her husband. Where is his leadership? He's failing as a husband and as a father. He's a puppet being passed around by his favorite wife for favors, manipulated by this spoiled child, Rachel, who resents the fact that she has no children. Jacob is a failure of a husband and father. Yet in all of this, God is sovereignly at work. Let's read verses 22 through 24. 
Then God remembered Rachel. And God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. Then God remembered Rachel. Now, this isn't a sign that God had somehow forgotten that she existed or that he had forgotten about her. Genesis chapter 8, verse 1 uses the same language, God remembered Noah. This isn't a statement about what God knows. It's a statement about how God intends to act. Imagine with me this morning that we're not, you know, at the end of October, we're at the end of December. Your children come down the stairs and see piled around the Christmas tree all these presents. And they first open their stocking and they pull from the stocking little bits, oranges, I don't know, little socks, underwear, stuff that's just not exciting to a child. But there underneath the tree is the package. And so your child's going through the necessities, you know, just getting through all the toothpaste and all the odorant and all that kind of stuff. But under the tree is the present. And so your child finishes unwrapping all of the little baubles and comes to the present. The child remembers the present. The whole time the child is doing all these little presents over here, she remembers the present. But now she intends to act. She remembers the present. That's what's going on here. God knows the entire time Rachel's sitting over here, resentful, scheming, childless. But now he intends to act. Now he remembers Rachel. Now he'll act toward Rachel. Well, if you know the rest of Genesis, you know that Joseph is vitally important. Because God uses Joseph to deliver his family from famine. Like his mother, Joseph is a spoiled, younger, and favored child. Mistreated, though, by his brothers. Sold into slavery. Now, we always blame Joseph's brothers. And they deserve their share of the blame for everything that they do. But, I mean, you look at this family, and it's no surprise that you see the resentment and the conflict in the children because look at the parents. They are a mess. It's the conflict of the parents born out in the lives of the children that come by their dysfunction honestly. Yet God miraculously uses this mess to deliver his people. And it's at this point we think we understand why God is doing this. He's going to use Joseph to deliver his people. But if we track forward, that's not really the point of this story. You see, Joseph's story is a subplot. Oh, it's an important subplot. Because through Joseph, God preserves his people. But Joseph is really a footnote to what really is going on here through Judah, the fourth son, Act 7, God's redeeming grace. You see, Genesis 1 through 11 reveal for us the foundations of history. Not just any history, but God's redemptive history. But we come to chapter 3 and we enter the saddest chapter in all of history. You see, Genesis 1 and 2 are an account of origins, where everything came from. Genesis 3 is an account of how it all got messed up. 
And then Genesis 4, 5, 6, all the way to 11, are a tracing of the lines of the two seeds, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And we come to Genesis chapter 12, and we find a son of the woman, Abram. And God calls Abraham, Abraham out of a pagan land. And then chapters 12 through 50 in Genesis are about God dealing with Abraham's family. Then we come to the book of Exodus. And Exodus through Malachi is a story of God taking this family and building a nation. And yet in all of these things, there's something missing. The serpent is still living. The serpent is still active. The serpent is still stealing, attacking, destroying. So we come to the book of Matthew. And in Matthew 1.1, we find these words. This book is the beginning, the genesis of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You see, this story, Jacob, Rachel, Leah, Bilhah, wives, kids, is about that story, about the coming son of Abraham, Jesus Christ. The book of Genesis is the genesis of the genesis of Jesus Christ. This is just one chapter in the greater story of all that God is doing. Judah is a byproduct of a dysfunctional home. And as a byproduct of a dysfunctional home, he has his own dysfunctional home. He'll father two sons by his daughter-in-law. And yet, from all of this comes Jesus Christ. You see, this story isn't here merely to be some grotesque record of how bad things were in the ancient Near East. They're a record of how God sent a Savior to redeem us from our sin. Jacob's story by itself is depressing. It's a story of a messed up family and a messed up world, but this story is one thread in the fabric of redemptive history. And it culminates in Jesus Christ, in his beautiful story of redemption, as God uses people that are so messed up that you wouldn't let your kids go to their house. And he uses them to birth the Messiah. This message is a message of hope. Because Jacob's son, Jesus, enters the world. The descendant of a dysfunctional family. And yet he never lies, never manipulates, never deceives, never steals. And yet in the end, he dies to bless his family. And Galatians 3 tells us that his true family isn't just this dysfunctional mess. It's anyone who receives him by faith. The true children of Abraham, Galatians 3 says, are those who receive Christ by faith. The message of Genesis isn't a message about this dysfunctional family. It's about God forming a spiritual family. About God taking people who don't deserve his love, who don't deserve his grace, and showering his love and grace on them. And then if you become a member of God's family, you have the best father, the best brother, and the most amazing series of brothers and sisters. If you're the product of a dysfunctional family, God's point in families has never been the dysfunction that you see around you. It's a spiritual family with God as your father. And if you're here without Christ, you can't know God as father or Christ as your brother, but if you turn from your sin to Jesus, you will have the best father, 
the best older brother, and an entire family full of brothers and sisters in Christ, would you turn from your sin and trust Jesus? Galatians 3.14, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham comes to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Well, that's what this passage is about. How does it give us hope when we are discouraged? Well, first, we can confidently trust God's word. If you were giving a eulogy on Jacob, you'd never share this story. I mean, if you're Moses, and it's like, okay, Moses, your job is to write the story of how our nation was founded. This is the part you should leave out. I mean, you see, we tell the parts about Cornwallis surrendering to George Washington. We don't tell the parts about Washington completely mangling the defense of New York City and giving up 2,800 troops. We tell the good parts. I mean, there are sections of God's word where we're like, what? No, like, what's going on here? This is one of those places. And yet God uses the blunders of fallen men and women to bring about his good purposes. He doesn't hide any of the mess. God and his word are completely reliable. So reliable that he doesn't have to hide our mess to accomplish his purposes. Secondly, the gospel gives us hope in the midst of sinfully dysfunctional marriages. A friend once told me that marriage was the best and the hardest thing he'd ever done. There's a lot of truth in this. In the best of times, marriage is really hard. I mean, marriage in a broken world is also broken. And difficult marriages are exponentially harder than the already hard marriage life. And marriage is hard anyway, but, but we make marriage more difficult with our sin. You see, we all bring something to our marriage. The greatest obstacle to a healthy marriage is you. Not your spouse, not your children. Now, we're not talking moral equivalency where one spouse is grossly sinful or neglectful or abusive or immoral. We're just looking at the perspective of the fact that we all bring our own baggage, our own sin to all of our relationships. I mean, tell me, if you read through this, is Jacob the problem? Is Laban the problem? Is Rachel the problem? Is Leah the problem? Yes. They're all problems. So, this means that healthy marriages must be built on a foundation of repentance and forgiveness. You want to be good at marriage, get good at repenting of your sin and forgiving your spouses. Because the truth is, we're all sinners and we all sin a lot. So the people we're with the most, we sin against a lot. Humbly acknowledging your sin and forgiving your spouse's sin is the key to a strong marriage. Because you will sin. And you'll sin against each other. The question is not whether you'll sin. The question is when you sin, will the gospel of grace and forgiveness guide you in those moments? But even if this is true, our reliance can't be upon our ability to forgive one another. You see, God redeems people and relationships through Jesus Christ. I mean, if you read the story of this family, four wives, 
two first-class wives, two second-class wives. None of them can stand each other. Children selling siblings into slavery. I mean, even if you feel like your family sold you out, probably didn't get sold as a slave. One who becomes kind of the all-star center of the story for the rest of the Bible, fathering children out of wedlock by his daughter-in-law. You'd say disaster, 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 disaster. And humanly speaking, it absolutely is. Yet the perfectly lived life, the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus are the great disaster breakers. They're great curse reversers. There is no sin that can overwhelm the immensity of God's grace in Jesus Christ. Some of us are dealing with sin and brokenness that feels impossible. And humanly speaking, it is. But as our Lord said, with God, all things are are possible. Sometimes that brokenness isn't in some relationship outside us. Sometimes it's inside us. Some of us know we are so broken. Like, Forget other relationships. We can't fix us. And our brokenness is like a bruise in our mind that no matter how good everything outside is going, I know in the end I'm going to mess it up because I'm such a mess. Yet Jesus entered the utter darkness of Calvary to deliver us from our darkness. You see, the gospel story is built on a broken marriage. We all want the storybook marriage. The one that ends in happily ever after. Two people loving each other, having a lovely family, and riding off into the sunset, living happily ever after. But even the couples that do live happily ever after have a lot of heartache on the way there. I mean, no one skates free in this. It takes a lot of humility and tenacity and endurance. And even if that's true, you get all those things, it always ends in separation with death at the end. But the picture of our marriage to Christ isn't the picture of the happily ever after marriage. Hosea teaches us we are the unfaithful spouse. The hymn, Come Now Fount, says it well. We are prone to wander. We're the wandering spouse. Our relationship with Christ, our bridegroom, is a terribly one-sided relationship. I mean, he gets the short end of the stick every time. We are covenant breakers. Yet Christ is the great covenant maker. And thank God, his faithfulness, not ours, is the guarantee for the great marriage between Christ and the church. But today we exist in a world where we experience the effects of sin in our marriages, in our inner darkness, and in every other relationship. But even in a world where we can see the effects of this sin around us, brothers and sisters, ultimate redemption is coming. You see, the best earthly marriage is just a dim reflection of that coming marriage. Revelation 19 tells us of a day at the end of all things when the unfaithful bride of Christ, the church, is finally made ready and the sin and brokenness of this life fade into oblivion. John writes, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude 
like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord God the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has finally made herself ready. No matter what heartache comes your way today, no matter what brokenness you bring or experience, that day is coming when we will receive full and final redemption and the glorious marriage supper of the Lamb has come when there's no more pain, no more sadness, no more sickness, and no more dysfunction. We long for that day. We look for that day. So let's take a moment now and respond to God's word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk with God personally, and then I'll close this time in prayer. Let's talk to him now.